started in uh, 1945 in Albania. It started with arrests, going around finding clerics and, and other believers. It started with 39 of them who were convicted at military-led trials. About a year later, uh, seven believers were executed. And that, that marked really the beginning of this state-sponsored campaign against religion. You can see one of the trials uh, happening right there, a picture that was taken during this trial. And so the Albanian government started uh, this, this campaign against religion, not just Christianity, but every religion uh, through propaganda, through book burnings. They would destroy churches and, and other uh, religious buildings. They would put people in prison and then they would execute some of them. And what happened over time is pretty much all of the Christians either hid or they left. They had been branded as the enemies of the people. And by 1976, the leader of the Communist Party in Albania declared that Albania had become the first atheist nation in the world. Faith in Albania, faith in Christ, had first come to that region at least as early as 325 AD, but probably a lot earlier than that. It's just, uh, it's pretty close to Greece. And, and so, so probably uh, the, the word about Jesus had come into that area very, very early on. And now, here in 1976, looking at the country, it looks like the story's over. No more Bibles, no more churches, no more hope. Where do we find hope when it seems like we've reached the end of the story? Where do we find hope when you have to go file for bankruptcy? Where do you find hope when you lose loved ones? Where do you find hope when all of a sudden you get served papers? Where do you find hope when you get laid off? Where do you find hope when you lose mobility, when your memories begin to fade quicker and quicker? Where do we find hope when it seems like the end of the story? To answer that question today, we're going to look at a book we don't go to very often, but we're going to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We've, we've just finished this series on Revelation, looking at the end of the story, uh, and, and now we're going to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and look at a time in the history of God's people when it seemed like it was the end of the story. Uh, but before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us. Holy Spirit, teach us. Change our hearts, we pray. Make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me give you a little bit of orientation before we get into this book. Because like I mentioned, uh, we've been looking ahead quite a bit. And so uh, we kind of need to have an idea of where we are, where we're starting off here. So there's, uh, uh, there's this... Um, device that's sometimes used to kind of help us orient ourselves to the Old Testament called casket. So you have creation, which we don't know really when that happened, and we've talked about that before. Then we have Abraham, and then Sinai to settlement, the, the creation of the nation of Israel, and then they move into the promised land. Then we have this period of the kings, and in that time, 
the kingdom gets split into the northern kingdom called Israel, which is led by an illegitimate king, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And what happens is uh, during that time, uh, Israel eventually, they keep rebelling against God. They have an illegitimate king, uh, an illegitimate place of worship, all of these things, and that kingdom eventually goes away, and it never, never does come back. But the kingdom of Judah keeps going for a little while longer. And so we are uh, right now, today, we're going to be looking near the end of that time of the kings. And then next week, we're going to move through uh, exile toward that second temple period. So that's where we are. Judah, the, the southern kingdom now, um, has had a series of evil kings. They've had more wicked kings than they've had good kings. And because of that... God keeps warning his people. He keeps saying, if you don't change your ways, I'm going to have to discipline you. And eventually what happens is, is uh, one of the kings rebels against Babylon. Part of God's discipline is he makes them subjects to Babylon. And then one of those kings of Judah rebels against Babylon. And the Babylonian response in, in uh, ancient terms is, is actually very, very gracious. We can read about it in 2 Kings 24. This is their response to the first rebellion. <clears throat> it says, he carried away all Jerusalem, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Okay, now that represents a very gracious response from Babylon to a rebellion in one of their, from one of their subjects. And then what he does is he takes this, this uncle and then he makes him the king over this now decimated people. And so now Zedekiah is the king. And he's a weak king and he's over weak people. And that's where we are when we read in Second Chronicles starting in verse 11. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Okay, 21-year-olds are not exactly known for their wisdom, are they? And here is Zedekiah at 21 years old, made king, and he is no exception. He is not known for his wisdom. He's not known for his good choices. And so we see what he begins to do as he takes over as the king of Judah. In verse 12, you see that he's too proud to listen to Jeremiah, who is speaking on behalf of God. So he's not listening to the voice of God. 
Then we see in 13 that not only does he rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, who God had put in place over him, uh, we also see that he had sworn by God's name. There's something somewhere in the Bible about don't take the, the Lord's name in vain. Don't swear by his name, right? And here Zedekiah is doing that, and then he's breaking the promise that he's done anyway. We see that he is stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Do, do you remember people that those words get applied to, right? You, you, uh, Israel in the wilderness, you're a stiff-necked people. Pharaoh, you, you are a hard-hearted man and hardens his heart against God. So already we should be getting the idea that things are not going well for Judah and things are not going well for Zedekiah. And, and what we should be getting from this is probably that Zedekiah is not the kind of leader you want for your nation. But people follow this guy. And then they do something else. It says they follow all the abominations of the nations. This brings us to our first lesson here. If you want to grow in hope, there are things that we can actually do. And if you want to grow in hope, then, then you need to look to the king who never leads us astray, who always walks in righteousness, and he makes our crooked ways straight. You need to look to that king. You need to pattern your life after his word, not patterning, patterning your life after, after earthly kings. And don't pattern your life after all the other nations. That way, if you pattern your life after Jesus, and you pattern your life after his word, no matter what else is going on, there, there's something that happens. One, you avoid the deadening effect of sin. E even in believers, sin can't kill us. It can't kill our, our spirit. But sin can still have a deadening effect on us. And then, as you pattern your life after Jesus and after the Word, the other thing that happens is that you begin to walk in the life-giving pattern of righteousness. There is a life-giving effect to walking after Jesus instead of walking after earthly kings, walking after all the other nations, looking at what everyone else is doing. We should hold our lives up to the Word of God, pattern our lives after what we see of God here. Zedekiah didn't do that. He rejected the ways of the Lord, and the people went with him. And so God began to send messengers to him. God is so gracious. He begins to send these messengers, including Jeremiah. And so we read on in verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But how did they react? How did they respond to these messengers? It says they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And it kind of reminds me of the, the pastors who are on the side of the road and, and they've got these big signs. And, and, and one of them, the sign says, uh, the end is near. And then the other pastor has a sign and it says, turn around before it's too late. And then this car comes by and he's driving up and he slows down and he rolls down his window. He's like, get out of here, you religious nuts. And then he goes speeding off around the corner and then they hear the screeching of brakes and then the splash of water. And they look at each other and they say, do you think we should change the signs to say bridge is out ahead? <laughs> but, but here's the thing, here's the thing. 
If God is warning that the road is closed ahead, shouldn't we listen? If God so persistently sent his messengers to his people because he had compassion on them, shouldn't they have listened? And just think for a second, what might have been different if they had? Does it really matter to God if it's a weak leader and weak people? Does that keep God from doing what he needs to do? What would have happened if they had listened, if they had looked at the sign and said, that bridge is out, I need to find another way. And we need to do that too. Shouldn't we listen to God? Shouldn't we listen to his word? Shouldn't we listen to his Holy Spirit? That way we can avoid disaster and then we can actually join in his mission. And as we do that, we'll see hope grow in our own hearts. It's like uh, on Wednesday, we were watching this video by John Lennox, this, this uh, mathematician who's also an apologist. He teaches at Oxford, right? This amazing guy. And he talks about being on a train. And, and here are these Russians that get on the train. And he said he knows a little Russian. So he starts talking with them. And as he starts talking with them, he, he just has this idea kind of pop into his mind. Give them a Bible. And he kind of, you know, puts that away and <clears throat> just keeps talking to him. You know, that's absurd. Why, how would I even do that? You know, what, what do you say before you just give somebody a, a Bible and all this kind of thing? And the idea just keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And so finally, he remembers that he had been with someone else before, uh, before he went on this, this trip. And the person had a Bible in Russian sitting on their desk. And they said, here, you can have this. I don't need it anymore. And so he, the idea won't go away. He pulls out the Bible and he hands it to him and says, this is for you. And the man looks at him, shocked, and he says, how did you know? And then the wife grabs the Bible and she holds it close. And they begin to talk about how, uh, you know, she, she loved their Bible and she read it all the time. And he wasn't so sure, uh, uh, but she was. And, and they had this Bible. And then a few weeks before, it was lost. They couldn't find it. They looked everywhere. They could not find the Bible. And at that time, you couldn't get one in Russia. And John Lennox goes on to talk about how there he was, listening to the Holy Spirit. He became a messenger for God. That, that does something in our hearts when we listen to God's word, when we listen to the Holy Spirit. And we're sensitive to that. And it begins to build hope in our hearts. Zedekiah and the people didn't listen as Jeremiah came and these other messengers came. They didn't listen until finally this man named Hananiah came with these wonderful words that are recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 28. <clears throat> and he said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. <clears throat> Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now that's good news, right? And I'm sure Zedekiah was rejoicing at hearing these words. Finally, they were going to have freedom. Finally, there was going to be some relief. The only problem is Hananiah was a false prophet who most likely was part of an anti-Babylonian faction 
that still remained in Judah. And so he comes to Zedekiah and he says, thus says the Lord. And then he follows that with, with some words that he made up that will serve his own ends. And that will be pleasing to the ears of Zedekiah. See, that's our third lesson. To grow in hope, we also have to watch out for people who say, thus says the Lord. And then they give an excuse for sin. We can always, always find people who will use God's word to justify what they want. We can do it ourselves, too. We can always find people who will find a way. They, they will use God's word to, to say um, it's okay to hate someone as long as they're a dirty liberal or, or a dumb conservative. Right? We, we can find people who will use God's word to say it's. And I, I even heard a, a, a pastor saying this one time. He said, it's okay to go into that job interview and lie as long as it makes you look good and you get ahead. We can find people who will use God's word to justify saying there's nothing wrong with gossip. It's just a hobby. It's my only hobby and I love it. <laughs> we can find people who will use God's word to justify sin, but sin works against hope. It works against hope. Remember, it has a deadening effect on our lives. But when we live according to God's word, uh, and not those who find excuses for sin, that hope can begin to grow in us. Zedekiah finds an excuse to do what he wanted. And so finally, he goes on and he rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar. He has now completely abandoned God. He's abandoned God's rule in his life. He has completely abandoned the mission of the people of God. Which is, you know, simply this, that we are to show the world who God is by the way that we live. That's, that's the mission for the people of God in its simplest form. And so, so here now, Judah has become completely unrecognizable as God's people. If you were to look at this nation, you were to look at the people, you were to look at the king, you, you would not know who God is by looking at these people. They are unrecognizable. And so God allows the consequences of his decisions to come in. To the city for correction. So this is the second rebellion in 10 years. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, I'll burn your city to the ground. So in 588 BC, the army lays siege. There's now a famine in the city. Eventually Babylon breaks through the walls. And then we read in verse 17, <clears throat> therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion. Right? God has compassion and he's sending messengers. Now the king of Babylon comes in and has none. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God. And they broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and they burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill seventy years." No more king, no more treasure, no more palace, no more people. Worst of all to the people at that time, no more temple. 
The nation is done. It is finished. It's the end of the story. And if you think about your own life, and you think about whatever that verse 21 might be in your life, we tend to stop there. We're reading the story of our lives, and we tend to stop there and stay in that moment and in that depression and in that, that grief and in that despair because we don't see how the story could possibly go on. And, and part of us doesn't even want it to Because right after that, we read that, that time goes forward in Chronicles, and we read that, that after many years, now, in verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This is the fourth lesson for us. If we want to grow in hope, we have to remember that the story doesn't stop in verse 21. The story didn't end there for Judah because God would bring the people of Judah back and he would build a new temple and he would prepare the way for a new king who would come who would lead the people in righteousness, who would never stray. The story didn't stop there for Judah. Just like the story didn't stop for the church in Albania. Some of our good friends here in Amarillo, uh, the wife grew up as, as a missionary kid in Albania. They, they would smuggle Bibles in. They would share the gospel. Her husband is an Albanian man who grew up in this atheist nation. And in this atheist nation, he came to faith in Christ, and he knows the Bible better than I do. You can find story after story like that. The story did not end for the church in Albania either, and the story doesn't stop for you in verse 21 either. If you are breathing, you have a purpose, and it is the same as it has always been for God's people. Show others who God is by the way you live. Show others who God is by the way you live. If you're breathing, that is your purpose. Now, the way we do that looks very different in different seasons of life. You know, I, I don't know what particular season you might be in, but I know that God is work, at work through your life showing who he is to others. And so maybe, maybe God wants to use you to show people what it means to have hope in hard times because God isn't done. He's not a God who, who stops in the middle of the story. Maybe God wants to use you to show other people what it's like to be content with very few earthly things because you have the Lord who is priceless. Maybe God is, is using you to show other people what it means to live a life of prayer because we serve a God who listens. Maybe God wants to use you uh, to show other people uh, what it means to just check in on them because we have a God who cares about everyone and no one escapes his notice. You know, maybe it's like Bobby that Nick mentioned earlier. Maybe God has put you into a season of dying well. You know, she told me, she said, don't you let anybody be sad for me. 
Don't, don't you let anybody feel that way because I'm going to a place of joy. Uh, this is a good thing and I'm going to be there and I'm not scared. Maybe God's put you in a place of showing that we serve a God who says death is not the end of the story. But God is telling a story through you. He is telling a story through the church and that story isn't over. And so coming back to our question, how, how can we have hope? How can we have hope when it seems like the end of the story? And we have to remember our hope isn't in buildings, it's not in budgets, it's not in politicians, it's not in circumstances. Our hope is in the one who is telling his story through his people, and that includes you. And he's telling the greatest story that's ever been told. It's about the king who paid the penalty for our treason so that we could become citizens of his kingdom. Amen? So the only question we have left we know the story. We know the mission. The only question we have left is, what do people see when they look at you? What story is your life telling? Who is the God that they will see when they look at our lives? Let's pray. God, you are telling a great story. What a privilege, what a joy, what an honor it is that you're using us to tell that story. Jesus be at work in us, in this church, in our friends, in our families. Lord, that we would be a people through whom you tell the greatest story ever told. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray.